Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, research director of the very same Texas Politics Project. Josh, you get enough sleep last night? I tried. I mean, do you? Have, I have I have kids. Do I ever? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm going to take that maybe as a no. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, even when I sleep a normal night, I'm not sure if it's enough if or not. If you're getting enough sleep. Yeah. Well, that's a general health question, I guess. Yeah, late night for a lot of people last night, and and early you know, morning came pretty quick. I felt like, but um, I think I was talking to somebody at Vox at eleven forty, and then eleven forty-five, and then at what time in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, stayed up for a while after that. I think, but feel very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because it was Texas primary night. Uh, we were, were recording this on. Wednesday morning. And as we're recording this, uh, most of the races are settled. They're still counting some votes in Harris County and possibly a couple other places. I think Harris County is kind of the, the big one. So some of this is going to be very hot takey. I mean, I, you know, was just talking to another reporter on the phone this morning who I can't remember what the question was, but I, I think it was about mail-in ballots. And I was like, mm. yeah, I just have not looked at that yet. Yeah. A, you know, so, you know, th- there's a lot yet to be digested um, in terms of trying to keep track of this and get some sleep and do some semblance of our day job. But nonetheless, you know, we're going to go through and, and do some first takes on this and try to start thinking about, you know, what happened last night and what some of the implications are out of the Texas primary. So, Let's get the big one out of the way first at the top. And there's, I would arguably, there's a couple of big ones, but, you know, we'll start at the top of the ballot. So Greg Abbott had, you know, what I would classify as a pretty impressive victory last night. Wound up with about two thirds of the vote. I think the last number I saw with Houston still counting, who knows, but, you know, 66 point something, I think was the last yeah. one I saw. And I think, I think it was high enough to round up. So we're going to say two thirds. And I actually, you know, I have 66.6 written down. Well, there so, you go. So that's, that's ra- so, you know, the round, it's, that's a legitimate roundup. It's not even a five, you know, um, with Weston Huffines very close, but Weston second place. Right. But between them, what, about 25, yeah, a little, little less under, than 25% of the vote? A little less than a quarter of the vote. Let's start with that because, you know, I, and this is a number I should already have in front of me. I kept meaning to look up and I went to the browser three or four times and it's probably open in three different tabs and I just didn't find it. But, you know, I was thinking about the question that we ask about whether the Republican Party is too conservative, conservative enough, or not conservative enough. Right. And it seems to me, as to, per my recall, that 25% is not too far off what we get for not conservative enough among Republicans. It's probably a little bit higher. Yeah, I would say it's somewhere in the... It's, maybe it's, 30, it's probably, maybe it's in the low 30s. Yeah, I don't think it's more than a third, though. Just right, as, you know, as, right. Right. And, you know, so that makes me look at this race and kind of go, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean... 
you know, been been working on the joke for months about Don Huffines, which now that he's come in third place, we'll just I'm just gonna tell, which is, you know, <laughs> you know, Greg Abbott moved so far to the right that not even little there wasn't even room for little Don Huffines <laughs> to fit in there, trying to run to the right of Greg Abbott. And um, you know, what can you say? I mean, I, I think that as we've said on this podcast numerous times, Greg Abbott's been preparing for this race, uh, looking like this. Mm-hmm. You know, Greg Abbott, and we should say, and his team, I think, you know, uh, uh, Dave Carney's been sort of present directly and indirectly on Twitter, taking yeah. some victory laps. Sure. And, you know. Why not? You get, you know, you get what you earn. You know, and he earned that. Um, you know, Greg Abbott's moved steadily to the right and didn't leave much room for people to really, you know, critique him on whether he was conservative enough. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, really, the only question is going to be, as he moved too far to the right for some voters going into the general election? I mean, I think the the late sort of surge in attention to, you know, transgender students is probably, you know, it's a risk. Well, because they, they branched out. It's more it's more than transgender students right. now. It's, well, it's, right. It's transgender everybody. I mean, in a lot of ways, mostly kids. I mean, let's just... Well, uh, it's transgender, you know, just, just so well, that we're not too flip about yeah. this. I mean, you know, the, the attorney general issued an opinion, which does not have the force of law, per right, se, correct. we should underline. And, you know, this would be a good transition to the attorney general's race, yeah. perhaps, um, in terms of the politics of that. Um, you know, which I, classified parents who support... And, and provide medical support for transgender kids as liable, to, open to investigations for child abuse, mm-hmm. broadly put. Right. A move seen by many people, probably not re- a lot of Republican primary voters, which is kind of the point we're making, but mm-hmm. by many people as um, very politically driven and lacking understanding of the actual where we are in terms of the 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 medical understanding of transgender kids and transgender identity. I think it's a fair way of putting that. Sure. Um, and so, I, you know, t- to your point, I mean, th- the governor moved to the right even in the very last week of the campaign. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's striking to me, I guess, in a way, is, I mean, the, you know, it's not it's not surprising. Look, you know, campaigns follow an arc. They follow a timeline. You know, it's not surprising to see the crescendo come at the end as you'd expect it as people are kind of going for their last gasp attempts. strong finisher yeah well it's, the, the swirl <laughs> well careful um but you know i mean to the, to the extent that you know it was i mean i would say this given that abbott had spent the better part of the last year shoring up his right flank and make you know basically creating no room for anybody it's amazing that even going to the final weeks there was still the need to continue to push this to the last possible issue, right, that was still being kind of hung on to. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, I think what people are going to take away from this is, you know, Abbott still maintains his hold over the party. He still has this humongous financial advantage, which is part of that. He's still got, you know, two thirds of the Republican primary electorate with, you know, know, serious, certainly the most serious challengers he's faced. And, you know, he's, I think they're all going to feel pretty good about this, right? Yeah, and it was also in the ballpark of, you know, just, I mean, just under what we've been getting for his approval number. Yeah, and I think that's, and that's also- Among Republicans. Let's say, you know, higher than he was polling and under his approval number, and I think that's right. And what I've been saying to people in the last few days is I, you know, this is like, 
I hope that somebody else can find this somewhere else if you actually care enough, because saying it now feels disingenuous. But I expected him to overperform his polling results a little bit because his job approval was so high. And even though there may be voters who are flirting with an alternative or who maybe even yeah. just weren't entirely sure yet, a lot of those Republican voters are going to come to the booth. They're going to see their governor, who they approve of how he's doing. They can think of some policies that he's promoted that they're very happy with. And ultimately, you know, why, why change course then? And in a sense, that ultimately kind of explains the you know, keeping your foot on the gas in the last week yeah, it probably in does. terms of the conservative messaging, right? That if you're, you're thinking that, you know, you've got, you've got poll numbers that are showing a, between a quarter and a third of Republicans flirting with another candidate and the candidates they're flirting with over the right, it makes sense to, you know, throw some messaging out there and that, you know, very high profile messaging. I mean, the, the policy move on transgender kids was a was a national story. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so I guess briefly on the Democrat side, you know, zero surprise on the Democratic side. Better O'Rourke, last I saw, ninety one point something percent. Yeah, ninety one point three. Yeah. So you know, uh, there was a great thing on CNN late last night, which I I put on Twitter and late, and probably a sign that it was late. Where they came in late with the breaking news that the Texas governor's race had been decided, you know, the candidates had been decided and they had, you know, better O'Rourke, Democratic side, defeats Joy Diaz. Yeah. You know, that's pretty good for Joy Diaz, who, yeah. you know, lost by 80-something points, I think. Good. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's great. You know, that's a pretty good hit. Um under the uh, circumstances, uh, you know, and and it and it, and it had uh, uh, Abbott de- defeating Alan West, right? You know, by not eighty points, but you know, fifty, <laughs> plenty, plenty is <laughs> right. Was- so you know, appreciate the context, CNN, but you know, maybe uh, some numbers on there next time, right? Not to be a stickler about labeling graphics no, or anything. Yeah. Um, now uh, let's go to the AG's race, uh, uh, lieutenant's governor's race. Uh, you know we'll, we'll hit on the way just to do this in, uh, in order. Dan Patrick cruises to an easy victory, Expected. zero zero surprise there. Um, you know not quite as as monumental a victory as Greg Abbott's, but still pretty good. A um, uh, little more complicated on the on the Democratic side. Yeah, I mean, we knew going into this that the, you know, if we, if we were to report polling, as, you know, in, in a really dry way when we did our polling for uh, the primaries and lieutenant governor AG race on the Democratic side, you know, haven't thought about it enough would have won. Right. And so what you find is, you know, kind of what we'd expect here. I mean, I think we expected Collier to be in the lead because he's run statewide the last two election cycles. So at the very least, there are a lot of Democrats who have voted for Mike Collier before. Right. And that is, that means something. I mean, for sure. Uh, you know, but I think... It's interesting in the sense that I do think that there is some aspect to this where when you send a Democrat into the voting booth and they don't know anything about any of the candidates, I think a lot of the, you know, not to downplay the quality of the other candidates in this race, but, you know, these sort of other things that voters can hang on to matter, whether the candidate sounds like a white man versus sounds like a Hispanic woman or a woman or someone of, you know, some racial or ethnic background that is not Anglo that can that can help in a you know in a Democratic sure. primary that's low that's low turnout. That's kind of what I mean. I don't want to say that's what you see here, but ultimately, you know, Collier is always you know kind of trying to punch a little bit above his weight, you know, in these races. And it's been successful and doing it, so. It's been pretty too, successful you know. doing so, but ultimately, what it's not enough to just vanquish the field, obviously here, and especially not in a Democratic primary. Um. So 
you know, that's there's that was quickly Democratic AG side. It's kind of a similar situation, I think. You know, this this case, this race had even less knowledge of who the candidates are. And, you know, here, Rochelle Garza, again, good story, you know, I think it'll be or, you know, if she ends up, you know, claiming the nomination of the runoff would be a formidable candidate. But ultimately, you know, she was the one identifiable, non-male, non, uh, or let's say clearly non-ang- Hispanic, yeah, right. non-Anglo person in the race. And I think that really helped her in addition to, the, you know, whatever right. and, else she and, did. And, you know, clearly helped her a lot. I mean, the numbers in that race, I would say, are are interesting and I... You know, I think your explanation is kind of what we go, is what we have to go with. Well, I'll say we see it directly in the polling, just to be honest. So when we asked, yeah, she was at the top of the pack in our poll, and pretty well, much everyone else. But it was, and it was the way that she was, though. So when we asked in our poll, we asked people first to give us a choice, and basically in the first round, and they could say, well, "I don't know." Right. And when we did that, most people didn't know. But just to remind everybody, our poll was, you know, basically the first very couple of days at the end of January, and the first right, eight, just first week or so, a little more than that of February. Yeah, so just before early voting kicked off. And, you know, when we asked basically about the AG's race, essentially you get about, you know, 10 to 15 percent said Garza, 10 to 15 percent said Jaworski, 10 to 15 percent said Merritt. And then you say, yeah, but if you had to make a choice and then Garza jumped to 41 percent. Right. And Jaworski goes only to 24. He gains about, you know, 10 points. Merritt gains a couple. And that's where you, that's why. So when we make that claim, you know, this is what this looks like. Well, this is kind of what it looks like is when the voters who had nothing to go on really went in on Garza which is perfectly fine in a Democratic primary. But that's kind of why I think we're sort of, you right. know, anyone who wants to handicap what happens next. <laughs> and she didn't have like a huge bankroll. No, it wasn't like, like she was so spending not, a bunch of money. Or, yeah, there's not know. a big external explanation for that that helps supplement that. Okay, that's enough Democrats. Let's go um, <laughs> Let's go back to the attorney general's race on the Republican side, which right, is really so what everybody was a talking big mar- about. Yeah, the, you know, the, arguably the marquee race, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously below the governor because it's so consequential. But, you know, so on the Republican side, um, the, 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 the question that everybody has been going back and forth on answered Ken Paxton in a runoff, mm-hmm. uh, finished with, you know, just under 43% of the vote, 42.7. Last number I saw George P. Bush at 20 in second at 22.8, Eva Guzman at 17 and a half. And then Louis Gohmert at 17. Mm-hmm. I am guessing Louis Gohmert will not be getting Christmas cards from the Paxton family this year. No. Well, and, you know, Gomer was the only other. I think I don't. I'm not sure. I think Paxton won every district besides, or every county besides maybe uh, one, Guzman may have won one, but but Gomer won most of the counties around his congressional district. Yeah, there was in a band of East Texas counties there that really stick out on the map, which makes sure and 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 you know underlines. You He's know, the big story in this race three weeks ago or so was the Paxton campaign focusing attack ads on Gomer in his district and in that region. That strategy was. Apparently well conceived, but also equally apparently did not work. You know, this is like one of these things. There's a, we have to at least drop one social science term every every podcast, I think. So the one I'm going to choose this time is overdetermined, right? You know, I think Paxton's position in this race was sort of overdetermined. I mean, he was fighting front. He had fights on multiple fronts here, and you can yeah. say that I think you know a week ago we were talking about Paxton really going after Gomert, and, and it was obvious I think in some ways that Gomert wasn't going to make it into the runoff, but Gomert was going to siphon votes away from Paxton yeah. in a way that's probably going to force him into a runoff. Later in the race, kind of in the really in the la, in the dying hours, you saw almost a, you saw a lot of the candidates piling on Guzman all of a sudden. And right. my, my sort of explanation of this, I think, is that, you know, Paxton certainly has a lot of advantages. He has a great connection with the Republican primary electorate. The base, he's cultivated this. However, 
he has a lot of legal problems. There's a reason there are three candidates in the race. And ultimately, all the criticisms he is facing eventually are going to break through, at least to some of these people. Now, if you're one of these people who's super conservative, you have an alternative in Gomert. Right. If you're one of these people who basically is, you know, like say a, a, a modal Republican voter here, and you're not necessarily looking to go to a Gomert, and then you're thinking, well, Bush or Guzman, as we've already talked about on this podcast before, Bush's, you know, legacy and brand of the Republican Party, it's kind of, it's mixed at this point, right. has a lot of baggage. And Guzman was starting to look pretty good to a lot of people, I think, given her her background, her resume, her credentials. Well, she, and, you know, she had money and she, she was- She was raising she was a lot of money. Were, she had know, good endorsements. A lot of TV advertising. Yeah, she had TLR behind her. Yeah. And so ultimately, I think, you know, what was probably happening in the waning days is some of these voters were sort of finally hearing the, the loud noise about why you should be concerned about Paxton. And they were looking for alternatives. I think that's where Guzman was starting to maybe getting some traction, at which point then everybody kind of piled on her. Because I would, and including Paxton, because ultimately if I'm Paxton, I'd rather face Bush than Guzman, I think. Yeah, no, I think that was, I mean, I think they're, they seem to be preparing for this race. I mean, I guess I kind of parsed it a little. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, it seemed to me most of the piling on on Guzman was coming from George P. Bush. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I kind of said this briefly to somebody, I'm some media hit recently and I didn't get to elaborate it so now I can which is in some ways there were like two races going on here. yeah yeah right there's the Paxton Gomert dynamic in mm -hmm. which you know the Paxton campaign has to be figuring that any votes they can drive away from Gomert will probably more likely to come back to them right. in terms of the logic of the voter that says okay I maybe Ken Paxton isn't the guy anymore because of these problems if I if you want to go to the right, you're going to go to yeah Louis Gomer's the obvious default. But then there was a secondary race within that race between Bush and Guzman. Now I wouldn't want to make this too stark. I mean yeah, but clearly you know, and, and you saw it in the numbers, and particularly in the you know in the early hours of the returns. You know that Guzman Bush race in the middle for the the race for mm -hmm. second was was very close for much of the night. That was like the best part about last night. In some ways, there were a number of races where you were watching two things at the same time. You're saying, does the person you know in first place currently get over the threshold? But then you look below that, and it wasn't like because if they don't, they're facing this person. Like no, if you right. look below that, there are two people sitting here fighting it out for second place. So it actually made the night a little bit more interesting than I think it normally would have been. And I and I have to say, I you know, I mean, I don't. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but we'll see. I'm a little surprised that it was that Bush has did so well in this race. Um, I was pretty skeptical, you know, a year ago. Yeah. I mean, I'll just admit it. I mean, I was giving a talk somewhere at the very, very beginning of all this yeah. and was talking about how this race, it was shaping up. And I, I couldn't remember, for a minute, I couldn't remember Bush's name. <laughs> now, that was just a cognitive tell, yeah. right? Yeah. But I, you know, I mean, I think, and I'm not sure this is definitive yet, but certainly this suggests that the Bush brand may not have been quite as expired as I thought it was. But I mean, 22.8% isn't running the table here, but I think this is, it's going to be a very interesting runoff. I mean, obviously, but in this narrow sense of, you know, it's one thing for George P. Bush to criticize Paxton, but be kind of running against Guzman. Right. With Paxton, and for a lot of the race, most of the race, trying to lay low, and then when he kind of pops his head up, they're focused on Gomert. Right. So, you know, the rubber's going to meet the road in this race. And I, to me, to a lot of people, I mean, it's obviously very fascinating because you got a couple of really big tests going on. 
in terms of each of these candidates. I mean, yeah. a real heat test for for Paxton. How many of these people will come will come home? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and I you know I don't know what you think. I mean, I, what did you think of Bush going into this? I mean, um, you know, I thought it was a. I don't want to say it was presumptuous on his part, you know, in the sense that it's a relatively free country. He can do what he wants. He can do what he wants. He has a lot of advantages. I mean, I think, you know, always, you know, the reason people run for office is always kind of idiosyncratic other than the fact that there are people telling them that they should definitely do it. Yeah. So that's always the case. I mean, you know, the point that we saw, it really laid bare, you know, I think how complicated his standing is in Texas. You know, we look among, you know, there's, says he was well, much more well known than, most other candidates of a similar profile save the Bush name, right? And the Bush name is really what pushed him there, I think, you know, for the most part. But that didn't, you know, lead to, like, overwhelmingly positive response. If anything, they were, like, notably mixed. And and if anything, actually, you know, net negative amongst the most conservative elements of the party. Um, So, you know, I'm not necessarily certain. I mean, I think you know it's easy to kind of look at this and say, okay, well, now if we look at it this way, you'd say you've got the Bush and the Guzman vote, and then you've kind of got like some of the Paxton and the Gomert vote, and there's some kind of like movement there. You'd say that advantages Paxton going forward. I'm not even really sure that Bush picks up the Guzman vote because, again, because of that kind of sort of you know yeah. the, the the presence of sort of negative attitudes towards him in the party. And again, I, I want to say like it's not his fault, but like you know he's had a a tough time, right? In terms of, you know, the Hurricane Harvey recovery, in terms of, you know, the Alamo. I mean, there's just these, like, issues that, like, and, and if you don't know what, I mean, anyone who's listening to this probably knows what I'm talking about, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll just say, people in Republican primaries probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I don't think, and I don't, you know, and I think, you know, in Harris County, where, you know, there are still a lot of Republicans. Yeah, and probably Republicans would be maybe a little bit more inclined towards a Bush Maybe. But for the Harvey thing. Exactly. And, you know, I think he's pretty radioactive down there. And, you know, he's got, you know, can he mend fences down there? We'll see what happens with Paxton in the interim. I mean, the whole thing, you know, the the sort of Damocles is still kind of hanging over Paxton, but... Well, that's the thing that's funny about this. I mean, if you were to kind of like forget about the fact that it was George P. Bush and, you know, whatever, and just say, okay, you know, Paxton only got just under 43% of the vote in the primary. He's got a securities, you know, the, the securities, you know, fraud indict or the securities indictment still hanging over him. He's got the FBI investigation hanging over him. You know, what do you think is going to happen? I say, you know, I don't think going against George P. Bush at this point, given the fact that Gomert got 17 percent of that vote, he's in as much danger as maybe someone right. in, a, in a similar, though. That's kind of how I was going to set this up. And I just kind of we just kind of went on. But, there, you know, there's kind of like on one hand, you would look at this and kind of, you know, when. When an incumbent like Ken Paxton gets in a runoff, even setting aside yeah. his problems, you know, you take that as trouble. I mean, right. you know, most of the time incumbent, you know, not all of the time, but most of the time, if an incumbent gets in a runoff, you, you know, the, the incumbent loses. Yeah. You know, it's a sign of weakness, even if they start out ahead. Right. Um, but as you lay out nicely, I think, but then on the other side, you know, the, there's a, there's the potential for a kind of you know, emperor has no clothes moment for George P. Bush, given that, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, the inside baseball in this race is that, you know, the Guzman and the Gomert candidacies in many ways, and not that it was all, you know, planned by six guys in the Exxon building or something, but that there was a certain sense of conscious disruption and, and a sense yeah. to derail Paxton and drive him into a, into a runoff. Right. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, on Paxton's side, I mean, you know, setting aside for the moment the reduction in turnout for a runoff, 
you know, which will probably be substantial mm-hmm. um, if history is any guide, which is a pretty good one in this probably. Uh, you know, in a lot of things. how many of those Louis Gohmert vote, you know, voters are going to vote for George P. Bush? Uh, <laughs> Not well, many. Well, I was going to you know, <laughs> I, I, let, let me get out yeah. my slide rule. Not no, many. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm like, well, okay, it's not zero. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. But uh, it's, but it's. Now, how many of them will stay home? I mean, right, you exactly. Know, no, I mean, there's a lot, you know, we don't want to be overly simple, but there are two kind of big dynamics. And that's, you know, one of the reasons, obviously, this race uh, uh, is so interesting. You know, I want to do something uh, a little bit weird Ooh. or not weird, but I, I want to go back. A second, you know, you kind of ushered us on from the Democrats. Oh, but sorry. I, no, no, it's okay. I, I, you know, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, we do it all the time, and you know, what yeah. fair is fair. But I, I do want to go back to the, to the Democratic lieutenant governor race for a second, um, and to the Michelle Beckley factor and Michelle Beckley getting almost three hundred thousand votes in this primary. Yeah, thirty point three percent. And open it up, you know, without us having to dig into data that we probably haven't looked at super closely yet in terms of congressional and and house races. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what we'll do next week. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll do some more counting between now and then. Um, Get that slide rule out. But we're going to touch out. on, a, you know, but I mean, so I want to do is um, hold Michelle Beckley like right out here. And yep. you, I'm in a, we're in a podcast. We're in an audio video. What I'm doing is I'm dangling my arm out like I'm dangling something out here between Josh and I. Yep. I'm going to dangle, just hold M- Michelle Beckley within view here mm-hmm. and then talk about what happened in the congressional races involving Greg Kassar and Eddie Rodriguez mm-hmm. and the Cuellar Cisneros race. Right. So you know where I'm going here. I mean, and and I've already been asked about this. Yeah. It's going to be one of the major right. sub-themes coming out of this election, which is... You know, how do we understand the progressive, the, you know, I, I think in an email to you or something yeah. or some notes or something, I, I it's a barbaric, as, as, a pay, as, a, as a professor once wrote in my paper a long time, long time ago, it's a barbaric neologism, but we'll call it like the neo-progressives versus the progressives in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Right. Because um, I think you ha- I, I, to me, I just can't help but think of Beckley in that. In that overall frame, because that's certainly the, you know, the faction she's associated with in the Texas House. She was a very progressive member, younger, and in that kind of Mm -hmm. left end of the Democratic legislative delegation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously, Greg Kassar, uh, there's no other way to, you know... To say it, he crushed Eddie Rodriguez well, uh, in that yeah. congressional race well, with, with and a I'll, third candidate well, in the race. And I'll, and I'll just, just you know, and Eddie Rodriguez, see, you know, big open primary got the replacement was the person endorsed by the AFL-CIO. Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, it's like, and again. Yeah, it's it's complicated. And that's kind of where I'm going. That's kind of where I'm going is. And then, you know, in in probably the marquee congressional race. Yeah. Um, Henry Cuellar and Jessica Cisneros are going into a runoff it looks like looks like i mean i think the last time i checked the site no it keeps queer is at like 49.98 right they're something. still looking behind file cabinets whoa buddy <laughs> take <laughs> Stuff it easy like that. um take it easy you're gonna initiate <laughs> uh, but um you know there's a ross ramsey reminded me of a funny story that literally in an earlier Quayar win yeah many years ago involved 
votes being found, at least the stories behind I, a file cabinet. So I'm not making that up you know, out of whole that. cloth. I'm blaming and now I'm and I'm totally blaming it on Ross. Um it's perfect. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, that race, there was a lot talk about watching things on election night. There was a lot of movement in that race. Yeah. You know, Cisneros was over fifty percent for a while, barely. Yeah. Um and then, you know, the the counties that were likely, you know, on the southern end of that district were likely to be, you know, favorable to Cuellar reported very late. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, there were no I, votes from Star County at like 11 o'clock last night. You know, there's a couple there's a couple different things going on here at once and trying to, you know, disentangle them is, is difficult. I mean, I think the going, you know, I know we're hanging Beckley out here for a second. I mean, to yeah. this, you know, I'd say... Well, we can bring her back. We're bringing her back. She's set her down. She doesn't have to hang there for so long. You know, it's one of those things to say, I, I Sorry, think... I think you're right, you know, in the sense that having that kind of profile clearly helps in a Democratic primary in Texas. I mean, that's the broad point right. here in some ways. It certainly is not... It's not clear that it's uh, it hurts, and I would say, and you can say that in some ways because you're seeing it in a couple, you know, different parts of the state. Right. Certainly around the earth, you know, except for, I mean, the queer system, I just need to, that's the one I want to dangle out and set aside, actually. Well, that, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I've been, I've been admonishing reporters all week, so I don't want to do, I do what they were doing, what I'm telling them not to do, which is, if you look, I think, yeah. I think building on what you're saying, you know, the, those two congressional races had very strong dynamics all their own, having to do with the regional geographic specifics of those districts, the way those districts were drawn, the demographics of the different of the districts. So you don't want to go too far, but I think the Beckley success actually does add a different yeah, the only thing I, the that. only thing I would I would handicap that on is I think, you know, with Beckley you also see some of the similar dis- dynamics we were talking about in the AG race. So again, when we asked again, you know, who do you support in this race among the Democratic primary voters, Collier was way out in front on the initial question, 26%. 57% they had said, I don't know. Collier, 26, Beckley, 7, Braley, 7. And then when we said, okay, but if you had to make a choice, Collier almost you know gets another 20 points and goes up to 46. Beckley gets another 20 points and goes up to 27. And Braley ends up adding you know 16 points. Right. So I mean, there's, and this is not to say that it's one or the other, but it's a mixture of factors yeah, sure. going on here. Um, you know, it's tough because on the one hand, I mean, we've been looking at the, you know, we've been looking at the electorates and I'm pretty confident that, you know, the data that we have that looks at sort of the the, the, pri- the different primary electorates and their composition, you know, one of the main kind of takeaways from that is that the Republican elect, you know, primary electorate in Texas is not that different from the overall Republican electorate, especially ideologically. The Democratic electorate in Texas, primary electorate in Texas is, you know, I would say significantly more liberal than the Democratic electorate overall in the right. state. And it's also significantly whiter, and those things are related in ways that right. are kind and of I think important. we posted a bunch of that data in the yeah. podcast last week. And so yeah. that's all up. And so, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to overinterpret it because I think that the the, the outside story looking in is, oh, you know, the, the neo-progressives. on the march. Yeah, progressives on the march. On ascendance, the march. something, yes. right? And it's like, yeah, but. The Texas squad. But, I mean, I, but I'd say, you know, okay, fine. But, like, let's wait and see. I mean, ultimately, you know, you can kind of look around and say, yeah, I mean, but, like, where are progressives really on the march? And also, like, what is it, like, produced? Yeah. Not to say, and I'm not trying to do, like, a whole, you know, Hillary Clinton, Martin Luther King, LBJ kind of, like, weirdo, like, you know, who's doing what and who gets credit for what kind of thing. But, I mean, to the extent that, like, there's been this desire to look for where progressives are knocking off incumbents, 
you know, I don't know that Texas is really the best example. And then we go to the Cuellar Cisneros race and sort of the, like, yeah, but what about this? And I say, yeah, but Cuellar is also one of the most conservative Democrats right. in Congress. He himself is actually kind of the outlier here in, in a yeah, lot of Yeah, that race ways. is almost, you know, I mean, it's a caricature of, I mean, people want to take it as the epitome of the conflict, but it's actually almost a caricature of the conflict because, you know, as we both said to people over and over again, Cuellar is not only like the most conservative or least liberal, if you will, or whatever, yeah. um, member of the Texas delegation. He's one of the most conservative of the entire Demogra- Democratic delegation in the whole Congress. Right. So, you know, and the thing about the maybe what makes the Cisneros challenge powerful in some ways is not even so much her progressivism, but that it creates a clear contrast. I mean, in, in essence, you know, how would you run in that district and say, no, you'd be better off with, you know, a sort of a, a more modal Democrat than right. Henry Quayer, even though like the park is named after him and, the, you know, and all this stuff well, that he brings and, back and, to and the to district. And to be fair that, you know, I mean, he has been a good member for yeah, that district. Absolutely. I mean, I don't want that to be lost at all. No, I mean, and I think and I think that's the thing. I mean, so on the one hand, you look at Cisneros and you say like, oh, man, but like, you know, she's been running for three years. <laughs> Like, I mean, yeah. she sh- and she should do well, but also the fact that Cuellar with his organization, with his name ID, with his presence in the district, with the fact that there are other Cuellars and other elected positions and, have yeah. been, you know, throughout and he still could not get over the line. It shows to some degree, you know, just his vulnerability and the fact that, you know, it's well, not so he much. He did have, you know, he had a pretty rough couple of weeks. He had a pretty cut rough couple of weeks. You know. But that's exactly FBI the FBI raided his house investigation. He, you know, I think he's not under investigation or nobody said he was under investigation, right. but an investigation that did entail going to his house and getting some files. Here's the thing. If you were to say to me, list your reasons in order of why Quayar is in a runoff, <laughs> right? Number one would probably be, you know, well, he's a pretty idiosyncratic Democrat. Number two yeah. would probably be, well, there's an FBI investigation into him that kind of came late in the campaign. Number three would be he's facing a challenger who's actually been running consistently, has a good number organization. I don't think on that list. An experienced challenge. He's running that district and came close. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I'm not sure if even at number four I would say, well, because, you know, progressivism is on the rise in Texas. Right. That's kind of down the list for me, at least. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, and I think this kind of speaks to conversation we were having before we came on about one of the Republican races. You know, as I step back and kind of, you know, begin to think about the big picture of this and need to look closer and see how a couple more things settle. You know, you've got a pretty active environment within both of these parties. Yeah. In terms, you know, that that was evident in this, you know, and part of this is, I think I saw an exchange you were having on Twitter, a comment you made on Twitter. You know, part of this is, you know, inevitable after a reset in redistricting. Yeah. Right. People kind of line up. You know, there's a there's a clarity that came from this kind of a redistrict, reor- this kind of map drawing. And it reorients, you know, candidates right to the district and to the voters. It's a different, and, you know, and that's going to be, you know, there are there are a lot of runoffs. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of Republican runoffs. There's a, you know, fewer, but still, you know, a decent amount of Democratic runoffs. Um, certainly at the top of the ticket, but also in legislative seats and and in congressional seats. And we'll dig more into that next week, but. Um, you know, this was this was a very active primary and in the end. And I you know, it's funny because going into this, you know, it looked kind of boring. It did. I'm really, you know And then it was kinda you know, it was kinda you know, there was some drama last night. Now, you know, it wasn't a political I mean, you don't look at this and go, Wow, what a political earthquake. Yeah. But, you know, there is a narrative about, you know, both parties are kind of working out their issues. 
and and they look and and, and they're looking differently. And I think you kind of you know you kind of hit at it when you you talked about the um you know the different kind of ideological profiles in in each party and the narratives in each party are kind of interesting so in the democratic party where you know progressivism may not be on the march per se and i would and i would be careful about that but the democratic party in texas is definitely internalizing the conflict in the direction of the national party, and it's having an effect. Now, Texas is different, as we well know, in, in among Democrats than the national party always has been, you know, but it does raise the question of, well, will it always be, yeah. you know, uh, how, how far is this kind of, you know, incorporation of, or, you know, this, this kind of engagement of the of the state party with the national dynamics how far will that go what are the you know and that's a question for another time whereas as you and i were talking earlier you know before we got on here in the republican party you know that's already kind of happened right and so you know and, and in in empirical terms you know we've seen that and what we've talked we see that and what we've talked about in here that you know the number of of, Dem, of republicans that identify as conservative the share of republicans that identify as conservative much higher than the share of of Democrats that identify as liberal and much lower number of, you know, much fewer or much lower share of Republicans identify as moderate than do Democrats. Mm -hmm. Different, you know, the sorting process looks different in each of those parties. And I think one of the things that we're seeing and one of the explanations that, you know, is a different way of like saying what we were saying about the Abbott thing earlier is that, you know, the Republican party and particularly, you know, Greg Abbott at the top is the most visible Republican is meeting the market in a very conservative, you know, out, you know, and in some cases, frankly, reactionary Republican party. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, you're not, no one, you know, we're not saying, Hey, are the reactionaries on the March? Like, no, they marched 10 years ago and they kind of, you know, they've, they've had their influence and they're having their influence and that's kind of done. There's nowhere to March. Right. I mean, you know, (laughs) other than behind Greg Abbott right? at this point and the dynamic in the democratic party is different. Before we end, should we talk about some just, are there any like, you know, down ballot races we just want to throw a hand wave at because it was interesting or a surprise? Um, or do you want to save that for another time? Well, we can save it. I mean, I you know, very insidery kind of stuff, I guess. I mean, um, you know, I kept going on about this and he won, but the Stucky race, where I, I think that was one of the things that was on nobody's list. Yeah, I agree with that. Right? I mean, it wasn't on our <laughs> yeah. list. And I, you know, I you know, I don't think anybody was going, hey, you know, yeah. represent and, and that was very close. It looks like I last I saw, what did we say? He won was just barely over 50% in that house race. Um you know, I think that for the most part, and I, you know, this is court of cribbing, and we started this a little bit. I, this is not so much race, but I mean, I think Dan Patrick pretty much got what he wanted. You know, Dan Patrick comes out of this with a Senate that will continue the trend of being relatively subservient uh, to Dan Patrick, and even more so given who we saw win in the ra- in those races, as expected. Um, you know, the other race, obviously, that we talked about here, everybody was talking about that, you know, was significant is that Ryan Guillen avoided a runoff. Uh, Guillen changed parties to the Republican Party, heavily invested in by yeah. Greg Abbott and and Dade Phelan. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of rest- Republican establishment figures, um, but faced a lot of opponents, including some some opponents 
spawn, you know, uh, funded by the what? What is the Stickland thing called? This the something defend Texas Liberty defend Pack. Texas Liberty Pack. The uh, you know next gen empower Texas. The rebranded empower Texas thing. Um, you know, so I mean, I think those things we notice. I think you know. Guillen avoiding a runoff is big. And I think he was, what, at about 53? 56, I think, actually. 56, even. So, you know, that's that's a... That is a big one for them. It's a, it's a big win. You know, a lot of times, you know, we go, ah, oh, big win. And what it really is, a huge sigh of relief. Yeah, well, it would have <laughs> but, been a huge loss. So how about you? Anything else? I mean, I, yeah, took, the, I, I took some low-hanging fruit there. No, but. I mean, a couple of things, you know, I think a lot of people, were, at least were talking to me before the race about, you know... How, how Ken Paxson's performance, is, you know, is or is not a reflection of Trump's endorsement or, or yeah. what it says about it. And to me, that's always a bad comparison. There's too much, as we already discussed, there's too much other stuff going on in that yeah. race. I think a better race was uh, uh, the Van Taylor uh, yeah. race in CD3. He wasn't able to get uh, north of 50%. And I think for, you know, look, it's in the House, in the Senate, ran for that congressionally, had a good amount of money. Under normal circumstances, there's no reason this guy should be in a runoff, but- he was one of the few Republicans not to receive in a Trump endorsement after basically acknowledging that Joe Biden had won the election. Right. And so I think that's where you see, you know, kind of some of the axes of conflict. You see someone who really should probably be safe, not. Yeah, there's a, there's a funky irony in that race and that, you know, that district went from what, something like, you know, Trump plus three or two or three or something like that to Trump 12 or Trump 14 in the new district. Yeah, no, it was basically a split district in, and it, in and 2020. And in fact, it and became harder for him. And now it's plus, yeah, now it's plus 15. <laughs> and then the other one I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm a little surprised about uh, Pete Flores. I yeah. mean, as far as I can tell, like that district was drawn for him to get in the race. He had the endorsement of everybody. He had everybody's resources and he still is in a runoff. I mean, that, again, if there's, the Guillen is kind of the big version of that. I mean, I think for Republicans, you have to show like, hey, look, if you're a Democratic a Hispanic Democrat in the Valley and you feel like the party's moving, you have a home with us and we need to show you that we're going to support you. That's right. why that race was so important. Pete Flores, I mean, it almost seemed like a foregone conclusion. This guy was running back in. Remember, I mean, someone else was going to run that seat. She got out because it was drawn for him. And then it still didn't kind of work out. So that's just sort of one of those that I just thought yeah. was kind of curious, funny. And I'm sure somebody can tell me why, who knows more about the specifics, but... Well, and speaking of somebody getting, you know, the person that got out of that, that would be another race that I'd point to in the local is oh, a, uh, the, the Ellen Trox claire justin Berry race. Runoff. That runoff is going to be tasty. <laughs> yeah, as we, uh, you know, and Ellen Trox has been trying very, very, very hard to get back in the legislature. She was a staffer before she was a city council person, has kind of moved around some in her focus, shall we say. She says she was the person that was looking at that district yeah. and wound up you know, sort of having to step aside because of, you know, not to put too sharp a point on it, the lieutenant governor's commitment to Pete Flores. Right. Um, but as we were, I think we were communicating about this last night of a chat or something. I mean, you know, I, the most interesting question out of that is, you know, Justin Berry, who's going to be, who's going to make the runoff, you know, was indicted over the right over yeah. the 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 protests in yeah. that's funny i had that like conversation yeah. with my head before yeah. we talked about this um over the protests in austin one of the uh the 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 austin police officers who um has been indicted for excessive use of force i think and i don't know if that's the exact indictment but over the response um and you can ask, I you, guess you, we'll never know, you, you, but I, you know, it seems likely that the indictment helped him. 
again, you know, like all things, the world's complicated. The fact that, look, you know, I mean, I'll say he did run last time against Vicky Goodwin. Yeah. Uh, and so he does have some, and those districts were pretty weak redrawn. So I would think, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he's he, a known guy. He's kind a known of, guy. In Republican no, politics, yeah. Well, and I think especially you know, in that area, he probably, you know. Has a profile. Has a profile. I mean, is it significantly, let's say, more expansive than Ellen Troxler's? I'm not sure. Probably not. But that's why I think the indictment late probably helped him. It got his name yeah. in the news. I mean, Abbott's thrown around the possibility for pardons. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff there. Yeah. So, I mean, he, I mean, he definitely... It reinforced something that he was already strong on in that race, probably. And there and was, yeah. Right front and, and center. Not only, you know, he, he had not only a support the blue factor, but also then a kind of martyrdom to the left, and in particular, you know, the Austin left that... You know, I mean, I think you have to. I can already. You have to really be in denial, I think, to not at least consider that that was helpful to him. You can already imagine the ads of, you know, you know who doesn't want me at the legislature. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You know, Austin liberals tried to get me, but they, I'm still standing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some free consulting, not that he needs it. Yeah. On that note, thanks, Josh, for being here. Thanks to our, as ever, excellent crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio here at the University of Texas at Austin. We'll have more on these races, and we posted a lot of stuff going into this that I think is still useful at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Just go to the blog area. You'll see it. Um, I'm Jim Henson, and we'll thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.